Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, we've got a big show, a lot to talk about in terms of, of course, the Trump White House, uh, the phone call with Vladimir Putin, what's going on in the Hill. We might even have a government shutdown coming our way. But we're going to turn things around a little bit today because we have a very special guest on the podcast, a book I'm very excited about that he has just written. Uh, we have Mitch Landrew, the mayor of New Orleans and the author of In the Shadow of Statues, A White Southerner Confronts History. Mayor Landrew, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And, and this this book uh, tells the story of your decision to take down four Confederate statues in the city of New Orleans. Tremendously provocative speech you gave about it uh, last year. And I want to I want to kind of Un- unpack that history. Um, you you took down that 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 statue of Robert E. Lee that stood in the middle of Lee Circle, uh, something that had been somewhat of a of, of a symbol uh, in, in the city of New Orleans. Um, I remember one of my first visits to the city, wondering what the heck does Robert E. Lee have to do with New Orleans? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we have a lot of, you know, we drive on Lee Highway up here in Virginia. I can kind of uh, see where that's coming from. But but what I want to ask you, this was, when you were considering doing this in the book, you, you talked about how you reached out to your father, uh, obviously a massive influence in, in, in your life, and your father advised you not to do it. Well, he, he expressed reservation because, as you know, my dad, even when he was a young legislator, when he was 29, was one of the first of only two uh, representatives that voted against Governor Davis's segregation package. And he felt the sting of having his life threatened and his family life threatened. And he, of course, went on to integrate City Hall, and he knew what that felt like. So he was really speaking to me like a father. Now, I, you know, I've talked to him a lot about this. Just the other day, we were chit-chatting about it, and I said, yeah, I know you said that, but if you would have been in my shoes, you would have done it, wouldn't you? And he said, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, he would have done it. So he, he knew that, that this was going to be a very emotional thing and a very hard, because he had lived through, along with so many of his other friends, the, the, the dramatic changes we've seen, uh, you know, that, that have been the result of the civil rights movement. But but I want to ask you, getting back to this point of of General Lee as not being somebody with a particular tie to uh, to the city of New Orleans, other than having been, you know, the, uh, the 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 great Confederate general. I mean, it's a, really a celebration of the Confederacy, not a celebration of your city. And you go into both in the speech and and, and in your book um, about the movement that led to the placement of statues like that. This was not about remembering our history. This was a very political movement. Well, you know, most people really drive by those statues like I did and never really think about it. You actually had a very uh, insightful moment. You're like, what the heck did Robert E. Lee have to do with New Orleans? And the answer was really nothing. But yet, there he was, not only in in, in a a, a neighborhood that wasn't distinct, but in the most prominent circle that New Orleans had. So think about it if you're in Washington, D.C., of being on the mall, not in some obscure neighborhood. And by the way, we're getting ready to celebrate our 300th anniversary. New Orleans was founded in 1718, and that circle was never originally a Lee Circle. It wasn't done, made that until well after the Civil War, because, and this is what is part of our history, a group of individuals who wanted to create a myth around the nobility of the Confederacy, decided to revere the Confederacy. And that statue was put up as a political statement well after the war 
to indicate to African Americans that although the, the Confederacy lost the war, that we, the people that ran the Confederacy, were still in charge, and you're not welcome here. And those statues stood there from 1890 all the way through uh, just a couple, uh, about a year ago. And so as we march through this racial reconciliation that we're going through that we haven't yet perfected, those monuments stood. And as I, as I was rebuilding the city of New Orleans after the devastation from Katrina, we did a lot of soul searching in the city about what history we wanted to remember, what history we wanted to just identify as not being really part of who we were and how we prepared for the 300th anniversary. So it came into really clear focus as we were completely rebuilding the city. And my friend Went Marcellus is the one that slapped me in the head and said, you need to think about that. You know, I'll help you, you know, with the future of the city, but can you think about that monument? And I said, honestly, as a politician, like, why would I have like with my dad? Why would I want to pick that fight? And he said to me very plaintively, as someone who was my friend since I was a kid, have you thought about what that statue says to me? Have you thought about that from my perspective? And did you know that Louis Armstrong left this city because of that statue? And, of course, when he said that, that is an undeniable you know, statement about how damaging that message was to African-Americans and many other people in the South who felt excluded by the attitude that put them up. But, but you, you said something very provocative in, in the speech that you gave uh, talking about this decision. You say, and I'm going to read, read directly what you, were, what you said, you said, after the Civil War, these statues were a part of that terrorism, I mean, the terrorism of slavery and the legacy of slavery and what the Confederacy stood for. These statues were a part of that terrorism as much as burning a burning cross on someone's lawn. That's, that's well, quite a statement. Well, it, well it's true. And it, and, it, and it clearly was put up as a political statement. And it, was, and it was designed to send a message. And evidently, the message was well-received. How do we know that? Because five million African-Americans left the South after the Civil War. Now think about that intellectual capital, that human capital, that potential. Great musicians, great artists, great doctors, great scientists, great lawyers, just great people, great chefs that took all of what they had and now the rest of the country benefited from it and great for the rest of the country. But the South, when we ask ourselves, why do we continue to lag in areas? It could be because of the attitude of exclusion. Now, I happen to believe, and, and it needs to be said very clearly and forcefully, especially in this moment in our country, that diversity is a strength. It's not a weakness, number one. Number two, we cannot judge people based on their race, their creed, their color, their sexual orientation, their country of origin. We judge people in America based on what their behavior is. We don't give them a benefit because of their lineage. Everybody's got to earn it. We're, and, and that's not what those monuments were about. And so as the city of New Orleans prepares herself for the next 300 years, she decided to make a statement about who she really was. And by the way, to the point that you made when we started, Robert E. Lee wasn't even from New Orleans. So if we were going to have a prominent place that we actually celebrated our unity, that would be it. And why would we do it with a guy that wasn't even from there? Why would we not have something else in our public spaces that really reflected the real authenticity and the diversity uh, and the multicultural character that New Orleans has had since the moment that we were born? And that is why it was, it was important, I think, to take the steps that we took. 
this theme of, of racial reconstruction that you get at in, in the book, I think it's a powerful one. And, and I think the subtitle of your book, A White Southerner Confronts History, gets at something that I want to ask about. It, it seems like you, as you, you relate the conversation with Wynton Marsalis, you had to come to terms with elements of your hometown, of your city, of your culture that were inherently racist, that you have to do it in a way that, that says, look, I acknowledge the racism, even though I don't consider myself a racist. How do you how do you see that playing out for lots of folks who cite Southern heritage and and the pride of the South, if not the lost cause? They don't have to be Nazis to, or uh, sorry, they don't have to be uh, Klansmen or or uh, or Confederates to say uh, that they they believe in their in Southern heritage. How do you how do you feel like that part of personal reconstruction has to play well, out? Well, I need to let me unpack that because there's a lot of stuff there. First of all, uh, as I say in the book, and this is a book for everybody, so I really want grandparents to use it with their kids, and white people in particular, this is an invitation. It's not a condemnation. Uh, it's not an assault. It's an it's a way to offer up, let me kind of help you based on my pathway, see the, what the real history is. My mother even said to me, after she read the book, she goes, well, Mitch, they never really taught me that in school. We didn't really know, which is a much larger issue about what, what history we really teach. Now, let me be clear about that. Not everybody that was against taking these monuments down could be considered a racist. Some people had really kind of benign reasons, like, well, look, it's just something that's been there forever. I don't know why they were put up there. They were pretty. And by the way, I used to watch the Mardi Gras parades with my dad, and right. I really am not aware. So that's that. Some people are, are just real adamant about once you put a piece of marble up, you can't ever take it down, no matter what. Now, there are always arguments against these things, but then there are some people, and I want to address this specifically. I do it in the book when I talk about David Duke, who wanted to keep them up to continue to send the message that white supremacy is the order of the day. It was a noble cause, and we lost it. In other words, we still believe that the Confederacy was on the right side of history. And I thought it was really important for a white Southerner, particularly an elected official, speaking formally on behalf of the government, in a city that sold more people into slavery, to say that history has rendered its verdict, that the Confederacy was on the wrong side of humanity, that it was fought to destroy the United States of America, not to unite it, and it was fought for the cause of slavery, so that people could just look at it. And oh, by the way, not just we had slavery, then we had Jim Crow, then we had civil rights, and now we're past it. No, look at slavery. It was terror. It ripped families apart. It killed people. It it, 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 it it allowed for rapes to happen and it allowed for hangings to happen. You have to look at that to understand how bad it was so that you can understand that it still has vestiges today. Uh, and not that we shouldn't really uh, just be uh, afraid of saying that it was bad because the people who are living today are not at fault. Nobody's accusing them of that, but we are saying that we're all responsible for making it better. So how, how does that responsibility play out in 2018? These are polarized political times. You have a, a president who's uh, certainly made overtures toward the David Duke crowd at times and has said things that are perceived, at least, as, as very friendly to white supremacists. How, how does it play out, in, to your mind, for individuals to come to this sort of racial reckoning? What, how does it play out in politics and well, in, couple, in, couple in, of in different policy? Things. First of all, politically, we have to be really clear in this country. There's a lot of room. We're a big country. We have big shoulders. Uh, the Founding Fathers created this system to countenance a lot of different views, conservative, moderate, liberal. And, of course, we're seeing the edges of that being pushed, you know, on the left and on the right. But one thing that we should never countenance is white supremacy. White supremacy brought us some of the some of the most catastrophic consequences that the history of the world has seen. South Africa, the Holocaust, slavery. And we can never countenance it. When David Duke raises his head, when when the white supremacists raise their head and they begin to talk about the fact 
that white is better than anything else, we have to say that's outside of the third rail of politics, which is why the president um, has to speak to that clearly and can't mess around with it. No equivocation there. Now, when you get into the other thing, this is just hard personally, but you got to go through this. You have to talk to other people who don't look like you, who think differently from you, that practice another religion from you. You have to be open to the possibility that there's something that you can learn from them. You have to weave this in your everyday life, in your schools, at work, you know, when, when, you, when you're going to and from the ballpark, in the carpool line. All of those things are critically important, but you have to value, you have to believe in this particular thing, that diversity actually adds to who we are. It makes us better. It's not a weakness. It doesn't, it doesn't dilute the authenticity of who we are, and that's just important. Some people today are questioning that fundamental belief, as they are questioning almost everything that we thought was already settled. And evidently, you got to battle for freedom every day. you got to win it every day, and I think we're having that battle right now. And I think people need to show up for it. So I want to ask you a couple of questions about what, how far this goes. Um, again, I, you know, confession uh, in terms of my personal cultural bias here. Uh, I'm I'm I grew up well north of the Mason-Dixon line, and when I first moved to the D.C. area, it also struck me to be driving on Jefferson Davis Highway. And I was thinking, why would you name a, a street after a, a traitor? <laughs> why would I mean, and I was told you have to understand the South, and you have to understand Robert E. Lee. We have you know Lee Highway is another one of our major. You know, major street, the major road that goes right through um, Arlington. Um, obviously, Robert E. Lee's uh, house stands atop um, uh, Arlington Cemetery. What, what, do, do you do you start removing those monuments? Do you start changing those streets? Uh, do well, we, I, would, I mean, I know you're I, I know you're the mayor of New Orleans, right but I'm, now, uh, yeah. no, no, I'll, I'll speak to the issue. I've thought I've thought quite a lot about it. Um, because, you know, the argument is a slippery slope. Well, where is it ever going to end? Well, like, gosh, if you give women a right to vote, I mean, the next thing, I don't want to be president of the United States, so God forbid, don't do that. You know, if you let black people vote, I mean, they might really actually elect African-Americans. Wouldn't that be terrible? We're smart enough to distinguish, uh, you know, between things, and sometimes things start and stop at different points in our history. So we shouldn't be afraid of that. Secondly, just as a general rule, it's kind of a weird conversation we have about statutes. We don't really have that about buildings. Washington, D.C., as we speak right now, is being completely recreated. We're tearing down some buildings and putting up others. New York City is a complete, you know, every city in America is going through this as well as rural areas. But for some reason, when it comes to statues, we go, oh, my God, if someone put it up, they must have been brilliant so we can never touch it. And we can't even assess it. So I, I think that's wrong. I think we ought to be in a constant state of reassessment. Part A. But, but, part yeah. B, well, I'm going to finish. Part B, we have to do this from community to community. And then part C, you can separate these things. So let's, let's take the hard case, and let's just consider Robert E. Lee himself. I don't really have any problem with the University of Washington and Lee being named after Robert E. Lee, because what they're remembering him for and thanking him for is commitment that he had made to an educational institution. That was a good thing. But when you use him, right, for the purpose of sending a message of terrorism to African-American officials and revere him for a bad, uh, a bad thing that he did, which was tearing the United States of America apart, I think that we have to distinguish between reverence and remembrance. And I think we're smart enough to figure out what that is. Which is why a statue of Robert E. Lee is in New Orleans means something entirely different than Correct. his name on a university or even his Correct. name maybe on, on, a, uh, right. on, on a major highway, you know, road through... I, uh, I think it's fair to concede to people who are 
descendants of Robert E. Lee that he did some great things in his life. He was not all an awful man. I mean, all of us are complicated human beings. He probably did some good things. And if you remember him for that thing, that's that's completely different from revering him for being the general of the Confederacy that tried to, that tried to destroy the country. We're smart enough to figure out the difference between so, those two things. So, and so, so I mean, every every community has got to think through that. Um, but I don't think that we ought to be revering the Confederacy as though mythically it was somehow some noble cause. It was not, and we can do that without demeaning the the memories of the soldiers that died in that war. So what do you, what do you say to those that want to revisit, for instance, um, Thomas Jefferson, obviously a slave a slave owner. Um, uh, you know, even Woodrow Wilson. There's been controversy at Princeton. Uh, Woodrow Wilson School. Woodrow Wilson was a was a was a segregationist essentially. Um, well, uh, again, if I, I'm not trying to pun on it, but as the mayor of the city, as I was rebuilding the city, I was thinking about New Orleans's place as it relates to the Confederacy. I specifically did not try to or attempt to start a national conversation of how we work through dealing with our founding fathers who may have owned slaves. I think that's really complicated and really hard, and I think people are very conflicted about that. One of the things I completely adopt, though, is our our willingness and ability to talk through it and to try to understand it. And I have hope that if we can have thoughtful conversations that that are constructive and help us get to another place, that we will find out what the answer is. But what we shouldn't do is not talk about it. What we shouldn't do is not is not front the issue, because on race, as I have said in the book, you can't go around it, you can't go over it, you can't go under it. You have to go through it. And so we have prophetic voices in America right now that have actually lived through this. John Lewis, who I think is a saint, one of my great heroes, can help us through this. But what we shouldn't do is ignore that it happened and say that we're past it and that there are no consequences from it. I don't think that's true. And one of the things we certainly should not do is retrench and go back again. Let's not not make America great again. Like everybody starts saying, wait, what about it was great at that time? Because from an African-American in the South's perspective, and many people from the South, things weren't so great for everybody. So if everybody's going to be in, everybody's got responsibility, everybody's got opportunity, let's go ahead and have that conversation at kitchen tables, you know, and in the ballparks, and we're going to get to a better place because of it. But we certainly can't ignore it. Mayor Landry, I want to ask you about the the future as you see it for for Democrats from the South. You've seen inside your lifetime a a near evaporation of Southern Democrats, particularly white Southern Democrats from the South. Your sister lost her Senate seat uh, not so long ago. Uh, Then again, Doug Jones just elected as the new United States senator from Alabama, a conservative Democrat, uh, not from the South, but in Illinois, uh, holding on to his seat in the primary just this week, uh, and and another big win by Connor Lamb in Western Pennsylvania. Is there a what is the future, to your mind, for Southern Democrats and conservative Democrats as, as part of the national conversation? Well, certainly, if you were living in the moment, you would say it's pretty bleak. <laughs> That's what the, it's a downward trajectory. We used to have a lot of elected wide, statewide elected officials. I was one of them. I ran for lieutenant governor and served the great state of Louisiana twice. Probably could not get elected statewide right now. But if you think about the long arc of history... You know, you can you can remember a time when that was different, and I think you can envision a time in the future where that will be different because the, the demographics um, and the attitudes of people is constantly changing. Uh, I don't. I think people were really surprised at President Trump's you know election to the presidency. Nobody kind of thought that the three states that put him over would ever do that, but kind of he did. And so things change, 
because people change, uh, movements change, and I think that you can expect to continue to see that. How what happens in the future? I think everybody would agree is completely and totally unpredictable. We can't tell what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, I will say this, though. Washington lives in a different world than everybody else. Most of us in the country, you know, worried about where we're going to work, how we're going to put our kids through school, how to get back and forth, you know, from the playground. And, and we're not as stuck in, you know, the alienation that Washington feels. And we just, again, as the country kind of sits in this seemingly chaos and insanity that we're in every day, we have to kind of keep our feet on the ground and remember that as Americans – that our diversity is our strength. That's where America gets its greatness from. And as I said at the Gridiron Show, you know, jokingly, but but seriously, you can't be great unless you're good. And we ought to think about what being good means. And we really didn't have that discussion during the last campaign. We just liked the slogan, evidently. But we're really, what does it mean for us to be great? That's a good conversation that we should have politically, spiritually, economically, you know, and as one large community. So I know you've got to go, but I want to ask you about something you said about the Trump about Donald Trump and the Trump campaign in your sure. book and compare it to something I heard you say at the Gridiron. In your book, you say uh, David Duke's demagoguery stands like a dress rehearsal for the rise of Donald Trump. While he may not have worn a hood or a swastika, Trump's rhetoric and actions during his 2016 presidential campaign were shockingly similar to the tactics deployed by Duke in 1989. And then I, I heard you at the Gridiron... Uh, say what I, I I can't imagine a lot of um, you know national figures on the Democratic stage would would, would say in the president's president you said you are my president um, and um, and and you, and you said you wish him success um, it was a patriotic thing it could be said about you know most presidents over the course of history but given what you just wrote in your book uh, comparing Trump to David Duke. Um, how do you square that with being able to look at it, look him in the eye and say, you are my president? Well, first of all, it is, it is a statement of fact that he is our president. <laughs> he is our president. And, and what I said after that is we all want you to do well. I think every American wants the president to do well. We want the majesty of that office to form him into a person that sees goodness. Now, it looks like as every day goes by that that's not going to happen. But that doesn't mean that we as Americans don't don't want that to occur. Whoever he or she sits in that office at any time, it was really a statement about the majesty of America itself and not him personally, while simultaneously calling him into purpose on how he handles himself. Now, I want to be clear about a couple of things so that nobody can misinterpret this. Not everybody that voted for David Duke, I mean, for uh, Donald Trump, is a racist. There are many people who are white in, in uh, you know, mid-states that voted for him for economic reasons. And I think that that's clear because they voted for Barack Obama, too. But it is absolutely clear that David Duke and his folks, who are white supremacists, are thrilled that Donald Trump is president. We should ask ourselves, well, why Why possibly would that be? And it is, in fact, true that David Duke and George Wallace and a lot of people use dog whistles to appeal to the worst instincts in some Americans. And Donald Trump would not uh, extricate himself from that language. I think that that is clearly wrong. Now, I disagree with Donald Trump about a lot of other things that people can justify on economic grounds or, or something else. But, but we should all be on the same page in America, from the president down to wherever it is, that we cannot countenance white supremacy. Everybody knows who David Duke is. Everybody knows what white supremacy is. Everybody knows it's antithetical to the idea of America. And we can't shy away from that. And he was way too equivocal about that uh, in his statements in the campaign and his statements after Charlottesville. That's a rail beyond which we should not go and a, and a Rubicon that we should not cross.
So, Mr. Mayor, when we have guests on Powerhouse Politics, we give them the, the privilege of two shots at the 2020 question that you get all the time. First, you can give us the official answer that, that you're supposed to give, and then you can give us the real answer. So the likelihood, the possibility that you're a candidate for president in 2020, go for it. Not very good at all. But that was the real answer. Now give us, the, that doesn't sound like the packaged answer. <laughs> well, Man. No, you're supposed to say, I've got no plans, something, I've got no intention, no. something, you know. Well, you know, that everybody, nobody believes any of that stuff. <laughs> but but I, one, one of the things I'm not doing right now is saying I'm not running and planning to run. It's not my intention to run. Um, as a, it would, it, people also don't believe when you say I'll never do it. They don't believe that because every honest person does not know what's going to happen in three and a half years of where we're going to be. So you never say never. But I, I just I just can't see that. I think there are going to be plenty of wonderful people that run. I think that it's going to be a, a battle royal. I think the country really has to do a deep dive of who we are and look at what chaos in governing really looks like. It's not really a great strategy for our country. It doesn't make us strong. It doesn't make us smarter. It diminishes uh, the United States reputation in the eyes of the world who look to us to really kind of keep peace and security. And I, I don't, you know, this, this, this constant insanity that we see from day to day just makes us feel less stable than we should. And we're better than that. And by the way, every day in America, different races, creeds, colors, you know, of people are working together and are just blowing past it. And most of the great stuff that's happening in America is happening in American cities where 85 percent of the people live. So there's a lot to be learned. And we don't have to really wait on the president to heal the country. We can do it ourselves. So when he makes a nasty comment, say something nice to somebody else. When you feel separated, go have dinner with somebody that doesn't look like you and eventually decide what we want our country to be. And, you know, the politicians don't always have to tell us we could do it ourselves. By the way, we can break a little news here before you leave. Uh, at the no gridiron, I was in your presence <laughs> when, uh, I, I won't say his name, <laughs> but a uh, you know prominent uh, strategist who's worked on a lot of Republican campaigns over the years came up to you and said that you should run for president and said that he would help you he would help you run. So uh, we yeah. won't we won't give his name. Perhaps we could have a we could have some no, guesses. And did, did you hear what I told him? I said nobody who cares for me or loves me would ever ask me to do that. And there he you said, go. Well, I don't there even you like go. you. All right. Mayor Mitch Lander, right, author of In the Peace. Shadow Statues. Thank you for joining us in Powers Politics. See you later. Buy the book. You All got right, it. Later. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Thanks. All right. All right. So uh there you go. you know, I mean no intention. He got to the he got to the official answer when he talks about the the potential for mayors and what you can learn from the cities. He's not just talking about himself. And I when I'm filling out my brackets early on for uh, for 2020 contenders, there are a couple of mayors' names. Uh, Mitch Lander is one of them. Uh, Eric Garcetti out in L.A. is another. Who's one. the UVA on your bracket for the, uh, for presidential <laughs> politics? The, uh, the, the, who's the, the UMBC? The UVA, <laughs> the, the 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 early the early front runner that gets that gets bumped off early. Yeah, I, it, it's it to me it's a compelling story. And he tells it in the book and that speech. If you haven't seen it, go find it on YouTube because it, it is a stirring speech and an important part of the conversation in the Trump era or any era, frankly. Yeah. Well, we've got to take a quick break and we're going to come back. We've got to do a few quick, uh, you know, I mean, there's been some other news, some news around here. Yeah, some actual news. We'll be right back. Are you hiring? Join the over 3 million businesses that use Indeed.com for hiring. You can post a job in minutes and manage your candidates from an easy to use dashboard. Post your next job on the world's number one job site, Indeed.com. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. Rick, you know, I, I got to get right to the other the, the story of the day, that the president had a conversation with Vladimir Putin where he congratulated him on his election victory. And, and it was an election. And the guy got more than 70% of the vote. Shouldn't you congratulate him? 
I mean, he did win the popular vote. I, the president maybe is a little bit a little bit jealous there. I mean, this this is a classic Trump story on a couple of different levels, but it doesn't make it less shocking, less startling, less potentially earth rattling. The president, if he's going to talk to you and, and hey, congratulations, that's part of what he does. We've learned from The Washington Post's excellent reporting that it was actually printed out for him in bold letters. Do not congratulate. <laughs> Well, you know, he's not a guy that listens to the advisors. What what exactly surprises you here? Nothing at all. Okay. It's what's surprising actually is that came out, and I know that the president's upset about the fact that that we even would learn that. Let's talk about that because that is a very small circle of people that would have access to the notes that were given to the president as yeah. he was having a call with the uh, newly reelected president of Russia. Wow. Uh, who who does that? And this is you have to remember earlier on in the uh, Trump administration, the actual transcripts of his conversations with foreign leaders, with the Prime Minister of Australia, with the President of Mexico, actually came out. This would actually, this would get, this would make you infuriated if Rick Klein was the President of the United States and, and you know, as sensitive a thing. I mean, it doesn't get much more sensitive than your conversations with a foreign leader. And if I'm not wrong, John, I mean, this would be a smaller circle that would have access to that. You can understand transcripts, readouts of conversations. Might that go goes through the, the State agencies. Department. Yeah, yeah, it gets outside the White House. This is a very small circle that's either so upset So about who did it? What's your theory? HR? <laughs> I could not apply Jared, a name to this Jared, little upset one. over this things? Is, this is too big. To, no, Jared. Who? It's too big to apply a name to. This one's, this one's bigger than that. I mean, it, look. Who I'm, did it? Who did it? You tell me the White House report. You're the White House correspondent. You should get on this. <laughs> someone someone would get fired if they found out about it quite clearly. Uh, and then to the substance of it. Somebody I, might get jailed. I mean, it, I don't know. Yeah, Is there a crime be. in there it, somewhere? It actually, probably, could be. It, it actually could are, be. But are, are, are the talking points for a call classified? I would think they would be. I mean, and congrats to the Washington. Great reporting to, for this to come out. But it's stunning that we know this even now. And then to the substance. I mean, so we know that the president calls Putin. Um, president Obama called Vladimir Putin when he was elected. And congratulated him, to the, okay? When he's elected to the presidency, he had, he had been sitting on the sidelines as prime minister, you know, not near Medvedev for a oh, while. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, that so, was a... Was, so he's just yeah. big comeback, right? So you understand that, fine. You make the conversation, you make the call. First of all, the, 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 the fact that the president bragged about having congratulated him. Secondly, he says, let's meet soon. And, and next, uh, we hear from the White House officially that there were several items that were not discussed. We know for a fact that they did not discuss election meddling, even though that was the very day that senators were outlining their bipartisan recommendations, and we know a range of national security officials say Russia's at it again. They also didn't talk at all about uh, the poisoning in the United Kingdom of spies, which is a huge Wait, they didn't talk about the poisoning? No, it didn't come up at all. I mean, that was... So, yeah, so it's like, congrats and let's meet, but I'm not going to bring up any of the hard stuff. And to my mind, it's a lot of of folks were watching this, what makes it startling, John McCain included, is that you're emboldening Putin to go further. This Putin uses this as propaganda. And for those who wonder, why is it that this president can't say anything negative about, about Vladimir Putin? Man, does that smoke keep billowing out. I don't know why I always have to do this on this podcast, but we need to, we need to talk about this. But So can I offer the possible counter scenario here? Yeah, yeah, I mean, please. once again, here I am trying yes. to read the mind of the president. Um, so... Is it all that bad for the president of the United States to have a good personal relationship with the president of Russia? Is it all that bad to have maybe even a little bit of a good cop, bad cop thing going on? I mean, it is true. They had just slapped the sanctions on Russia. True. Late. But done. Uh, The point that the White House makes all the time, this administration has done what the uh, Obama administration wouldn't do in terms of providing lethal weapons to the Ukrainians. Who are they fighting? Okay. So... In some ways, Syria, President Obama didn't act after the red line was crossed. This president, you know, bombed the uh, uh, Russian client uh, state of, uh, of 
of Assad's uh, Syria. So is it all that bad to, like, to talk softly and carry a big stick maybe is one way to look at it i mean is it is it well, really that is it really that bad so two points on this let's talk about the stick first of all because uh sarah sanders was asked at the white house uh directly does the president believe does the white house believe that this was a free and fair election in russia now i think we can probably agree it was not a free and fair election in russia uh the white house official position, i mean why because the uh, the opposition candidates were essentially approved by Putin? Is that That's why? That's right. That the, the jail opposition, uh, uh, opposition leaders, uh, there is... The, the same. Okay. But. Okay, fine. So the, the official White House position, though, is that it's not, according to Sarah Sanders, we don't, basically, we don't lecture other countries about how they do things. Actually... So those are words. I'm talking... So, so Okay, okay, okay. But that's... But again... Talk the, softly. Fine. Carry a big stick. F- so, Teddy so, Roosevelt, your so, guy. In like case you're thinking, so you're thinking sanctions, right? Of course, that the, the White House will be imposing big sanctions that Congress has already approved. Wait, no, not not so much. And then I, and what you can't get away from in the Putin conversation, you can't get away from it, John, as, as try as you might, is is that the Mueller investigation continues, and it is supposed to look at it's supposed at its heart potential collusion, uh, potential meddling, no all of these things. So so the president still privately and publicly continues to rage against this very investigation at the same time that he says nice things about Vladimir Putin. So he's much tougher on Robert Mueller than he is on Vladimir Putin, is what you're saying. Orders of magnitude. It okay. Would at this point. I'll, I'll, I'll grant that. But why? Let, let's try to get, let's try to again, because this Policy. one I can't help yeah. you on. So actually, I, I do have a theory maybe on this too. But the president over the weekend and again this morning a series of tweets just ripping apart the uh, the special counsel. Yeah. Uh, ripping apart Robert Mueller, suggesting there's investigation never should have been, quoting Robert, quoting Alan Dershowitz, saying this investiga- this this thing never should have been named in the first place, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, why does he do it? Why does he do it? Republicans have to come to the microphones and say, oh, it would be a grave mistake for him to fire Mueller. Uh, you know, Paul Ryan has to come out and say he's had private assurances from the president. He's not going to fire Mueller. So why does he continue to do these provocative tweets? I have a theory, but first I want to hear Rick Klein's theory. He's working the refs. And I think the concern is that something is going to come out. Mueller's going to have something. And he wants to inject and and reinforce, because he's hearing it a lot on Fox News and other conservative media outlets, the, the biases inside here and keep that piece of the defense alive. I also think he wants to keep everyone a little off balance on this. I don't think he's tweeting about Mueller because he intends to fire Mueller, but I think he benefits from the perception that he might fire Mueller at any point. And I think when you see members of Congress, including Paul Ryan, Paul Ryan is not going out there and saying he's not going to fire Mueller based on his own his own freelancing. He's going out there because he's assured of that privately with the with the ability to go out there and talk about it publicly. I feel like that, and Mitch McConnell as well, they went out and, and, and provided that cover, and once again, he stirs the pot. Disruption is domination, and once again, the president's in the middle of it all. I have a different theory. First of all, yours may be right, so I, I have no idea. And this is, you know, we're, we're trying to read read a presidential mind here. <laughs> uh, I think he does it because he sees an instantaneous response. Mm. He sees heads exploding on MSNBC and <laughs> CNN. He can actually tweet and turn on the cables. He could play them all on, on, on the different screens. He's got either in that office off the... Uh, you know, off the Oval Office or if he's in the residence, depending what time of day he's tweeting. And he gets to watch people go completely bonkers. 
So it's like a video game. Where it's you, like, you're, like fun. You're, you're blowing up the, the it's spaceship. Just like, yeah, it's just like, oh, wow, watch, watch. You want, yeah. you want to see him go nuts now? I'm going to do this. And the strategy there is disruption. The strategy there disruption. is, is continuing the cast. Or it's and, entertainment. The, and and I, they give you another metaphor on this that comes to my mind constantly. It's like the pebble metaphor of, of the president liking to throw that pebble in the middle of the pond, watch everyone chase the, the ripples. Yeah. He throws another pebble that, that, that ripples all over. Then he, a whole clump of mud comes out, and he, it just keeps going. And has got to be something else. Right, I mean, it's like boom—you just dominate everything. So uh, we have to go. We're out of time, but I'm going to give you one more uh, uh, quick uh, uh, quiz here. We've had three different stories involving women in the news with the president. We had uh, Summer Zervos, uh, her her case against the president, the former apprentice guest, uh, can go forward. Uh, we have the former Playboy play, uh, Playboy playmate uh, McDougal who is suing to be able to get out of her NDA so that she can speak. She's the one that got $150,000 mm-hmm. from the president's friend at the National Enquirer uh, to, uh, you know, uh, for her silence. And then, of course, uh, we have uh, Stormy, Stormy Daniels, Daniels yeah. uh, who uh, her, her, you know, beginning to do her 60 Minutes thing will be this Sunday. Where are you going with this? Is this a multiple choice question? Yeah, multiple <laughs> choice. So which of these three stories will be the most damaging to President Trump. Wow. One is some reservos. Yeah. Two, the Playboy Playmate. Three, Stormy Daniels. I think summer because that that potentially gets at something that's non consensual. How about that? It's a little bit different than um, than just paying and cover ups. That's about actual actual harassment. Discovery potential. Yeah, right. Exactly. That that goes a lot deeper. I, to me, the legal issues around a non disclosure agreement. Stormy Daniels' story is pretty much disclosed at this point. You think? Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd say the same thing about the former Playmate model as well. I mean, we we know a lot of these things already. That's sort of out there already. But to me, opening the door to or to to other sorts of unwelcome sexual advances, that's another chapter that has a potential, and it's going to get played out. You're right in 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 a pretty excruciating court fashion, potentially with with discovery and depositions and all the things that could that could come out as a result. Uh, it seems like you start opening opening doors pretty quickly. All right, Rick Klein, political director of ABC News, fearless uh, predictor of yes. There you go. All right, thank you for joining us on Powerhouse Politics. Uh, we appreciate it. We'll be back next week. We might even be back with an emergency podcast. Uh, thank you to our entire team, and uh, we'll see you soon. <laughs>